0: Almighty God and Father we worship you and praise you this morning as the God who reigns and rules over everything in this world all that we've walked through in the week behind us and all that we anticipate in the week ahead is under your providential care and we worship you and we praise you for being over us protecting us being a refuge for us and a fortress for us guide us now as we open up your scriptures together and lead us to know more deeply your son and to be filled more fully with your spirit that we might reflect Jesus in our world. We pray this in his name. Amen. You can be seated. For the past few weeks in our series on First Peter, we have been considering Peter's counsel for how these Christians in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey, were to live out their lives faithfully... In the midst of the society where they did not fully belong they were aliens and strangers. And we can imagine these early Christians gathering together in a kind of clandestine way huddling together comparing stories about their hardships and their struggles their fears their concerns and wondering what should we do? How should we live in this world where we don't seem to fit and where we seem to be suspect To our neighbors and our friends. We worship a crucified king after all. And crucifixion as everyone knew in that day. Was the penalty given to those who were political revolutionaries. And so opposed to Rome. So they knew they were already under suspicion. So how are we to live? That's their question. Peter's succinct answer to that question we saw in chapter 2 verses 11 and 12. Essentially abstain from sinful desires and do good among those where you have been sent. Live a good life, he says, among the pagans. And then in verse 13 of chapter 2, he gives this general principle. Submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then he works out that principle in the civic sphere. And then in the household sphere. All of this was a radical and challenging exhortation for them. As it is for us, even as we listen in. To be in the world, but not of the world. To support the society that they were in but also to subvert it and to resist it in different ways. And this takes discernment and trust and faithfulness of course to live this way. Now Peter concludes this section as we turn today to verses 8 through 17 of chapter 3. By addressing the entire community. See how verse 8 begins. Finally all of you he says. And we'll begin our study today here seeking to unpack Peter's vision for their lives as expressed in these verses. And we will of course see that this vision applies also to us. And then secondly in verses 13 to 17 which begins a new section of the letter. We'll examine two of the results of this radical way of life. Seeking to gain insight for ourselves as followers of Christ today. So first his concluding instructions in this section... He says the Christian life is a communal reality. It's a group project and Peter addresses five qualities that he calls the Christians in that day to embody together. These qualities reflect the importance and priority of Christian community. Think about it as we've seen in the past weeks many if not most of these Christians are experiencing insult and trial in the structures and relationships in which they find themselves on a daily basis. But what a tremendous gift. A great gift. That they've been invited into this life together. Into a unified loving family. That nurtures and supports them. Where they express sympathy and compassion toward one another from a humble heart. That's an incredible gift. And Peter in these verses states these five qualities. Much like the fruit of the spirit. That undergird and enable true community. So let's take them briefly in turn. First he says live in harmony with one another literally be of one mind or of the same mind we as the church are to be unified in our minds in the way that we think and in what we prioritize which is the glory of God and his purposes being worked out and the good of our neighbor but not I should say our own preferences or opinions that is not what we are to prioritize this of course is a little bit tricky this doesn't mean that we don't have disagreements and differing opinions on various matters ...as the body of Christ. That's all part of bringing our full selves to the table in the church. But what it does mean... ...is that we'll have a fundamental agreement and harmony in purpose. And a movement toward that purpose with aims that are clear together. It means that our our preferences, whatever they may be... ...will always be subject to that great aim, to our ultimate goal... ...which is the glory of God... ...and the good of our neighbors. In Paul's writings in Philippians 1 27, he says that he wants to find the church... ...quote standing firm in one spirit with one mind... ...striving side by side for the faith of the gospel end quote. That one mind according to Paul and Peter would agree is critical to their mission and their life together. Be sympathetic he says. Which is to exhibit a, a sense of understanding and support and care toward one another in our lives. Especially in times of difficulty or need. Don't be hardened to the situation of others. But consider it their situation that is as your own. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers he says. And that is family language. This is the word Philadelphia or in the original here. We are the church are a family marked by the central characteristic of love. That is central and key as I've said from this pulpit before. Do we love one another as family? Do we have that kind of stick-to-itiveness. That enables us to bear up together in trial and difficulty. Or have we become so impersonal. So programmatic. So transactional. That we've lost the warmth and the heart of a familial love. We have to be on guard against that as a church body. Love one another as brothers. Be compassionate then he says. And similar to sympathetic. It implies a tenderness. in approaching someone in their plight or situation. Particularly when they are in difficulty. Of course. We see this compassion in Jesus. As he looks out upon the crowds. Are, are we the question is. Are, are we too focused upon ourselves. Too fast paced in our upwardly mobile lives. To have compassion for one another. And then the fifth thing he mentions is Humility. Be humble the other four that he's mentioned up to this point were values that those in the Greco-Roman culture would have affirmed and also promoted but not this one and that's where there is a clear distinction humility in that day and age was considered to be appropriate for those who were ignoble or of low status but it's something that Christians and before them uh, the nation of Israel and God's people in the Old Testament championed no doubt because our king Jesus was marked by humility Humility, of course, is the opposite of trying to exalt ourselves, of glorying in our privileged position or status. And humility frees us then to have compassion and sympathy and brotherly love and even unity. Consider, for example, how often pride in our own opinions and perspectives breaks the unity of the church and leads to hurt. We speak too harshly, we lash out to others, we become inflexible. Holding our views as if they are the only view. And we demand our preferences be met. These of course are symptoms of pride in our lives. And they do not advance the purposes of God and his gospel. Nor do they enable the diverse body of his people to be in harmony together. To be of one mind. To be marked by love. So Peter names humility as an essential component to healthy community. And to healthy relationships. These five things, of course, point to a life that's been animated by the Holy Spirit. By the very power and life of God. Our natural state under sin, under the power of sin, is self-centered. Luther wrote in his lectures on Romans that, quote, Scripture describes man as so curved in upon himself that he uses not only physical but even spiritual goods for his own purposes. And in all things seeks only himself. That is our natural way. But living this way of course causes discord, disunity, and disharmony, and division. And what Peter paints here for a community in which the power of sin has been broken is lives that are that are now oriented not around oneself but oriented around the others with whom we are in community and around their needs. And this of course is what the entire New Testament points us toward. This is a life that is not about exerting our own will or way but is about yielding to God's will together. It is living our lives in the grips of the love of God. And then embodying that way of love with one another. And I I know that sounds lofty. It sounds like a great ideal. But I do want to say that it's honestly just hard work. Daily work of putting the needs of another ahead of our own. Don't think for a moment that Christians living in Asia Minor 2000 years ago were any easier to love than you and I are today. This was hard work back then for them. And it's hard work for us today. But it's this kind of love, of course, that marks us out as Christians. I wonder if it defines us as a body. About 11 years ago, Mandy and I were able to have lunch together with a couple who had been leaders and were leaders in the Anglican Church in Rwanda. And in 1996, this man had been asked to take over the job of bishop in the northwest corner of Rwanda in Ruingeri that was of course just shortly after the genocide of 1994 and at that time there were still many rebels coming in from the Congo into that region and and committing real crimes murder and violence everyone in his life that he asked including others who were in the church said to him do not take this job you will be dead as will your family within a month but he said to us over lunch he said when the Lord calls you go you obey After the lunch was over, my wife was asking his wife, so how in the world did you, how were you comfortable doing that? They had five kids at the time. And her response was beautiful. She said, you know, out there we couldn't control anything. But we knew that we would be okay. Because in here, in our family, it was okay. And we could take that with us wherever we went. And I think that's the kind of picture that Peter is describing to the Christians here in verse 8 of chapter 3. Your lives are difficult and tough. You're suffering unjustly. You're bearing up under harsh masters. And, and you come together and you need a place where everything is okay. Where you're bonded together in love. It's that kind of respite. That kind of picture that he paints for them. I, I wonder, is this the way that we think about the church today? Is this the way that we think about ourselves at Park Street Church? Do we think, ah, this is a place that I can come and find rest. Find Uh, encouragement find compassion find love find sympathy even though my life may be chaotic out in the world this is a place of refuge so this way of love and humility for one another then spills over in their treatment of others and that's verse 9 do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult but with blessing because to this you were called Peter says so that you may inherit a blessing These words, of course, resonate with the teaching and the example of Jesus powerfully. So Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28. Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And the example of Jesus, as we read at the end of chapter 2 last week, reminds us that when he was insulted and hurt and cursed, he did not retaliate in turn. Instead... Of retaliation. Jesus cries out for their forgiveness. As he hangs on the cross. That was returning evil and insult. With blessing. Stephen of course did the same thing. Famously in Acts chapter 7. As he's being martyred. Or consider Cyprian. Who I mentioned a few weeks ago. Who's martyred him in 258. When he said he got the death sentence. And he said thanks be to God. The story continues. Cyprian was taken to the place of execution. Where he removed his outer cloak. Spread it on the ground. So that he could kneel on it. Next, he removed his inner garment and gave it to his deacons. Then he stood erect and began waiting for the executioner. When the executioner came, Cyprian told his friends to give the man 25 gold pieces. That is returning evil with blessing. And it is to this way of blessing, what Jesus describes as loving your enemies, that we, the body of Christ, are called Peter says do this at the end of verse 9. So that you inherit a blessing. That doesn't mean of course that we earn the blessing. Inheritances are not earned. But they come to the family. And those who live in this kind of way. Are reflecting the family likeness. This way of absorbing evil. Stopping the inevitable cycle of violence. That goes on in our world. Because we've been called to love. Because we have been loved. Those who live this way inherit this blessing. This blessing. Peter says next he cites Psalm 34 which we read earlier in verses 10 through 12 to to reinforce his teaching and to make a connection back to the central concept that's running throughout his letter but especially through these instructions of the fear of the Lord something that informs the behavior of Christians in the verse just preceding this one that he quotes in verse 10 Psalm 34 11 it says this come O children listen to me I will teach you the fear of the Lord and then the verses that Peter quotes here illustrate what the life of fearing the Lord looks like keeping your tongue from evil and lips from deceit turning from evil and doing good this is what Peter says this is what it means and he's citing Old Testament authority to live in the constant presence of God under his inescapable merciful perfect gaze to walk boldly to let our lips speak of evil or to be bold in sin is to presume upon the kindness and grace of God it is not to live in the fear of the Lord but what this psalm teaches as verse 12 shows us is that God opposes even those among his own people who do evil because that kind of presumption upon the grace of God will, will end in judgment but the psalm says and Peter quotes God's eyes are on the righteous on those who walk humbly with him in the fear of him as demonstrated in a life of right living This right living is, of course, all empowered by grace and by the Spirit of God. It's not about earning our way, but about expressing the identity, the new birth that we've been given by the mercy of God. And that means not presuming upon God's kindness. It means acknowledging his sovereign rule over our lives. It means recognizing that he is an impartial judge. And it means turning from evil and doing good with our actions and our words because we are deeply loved by him. So now let's turn from his instructions to the Christian community. To the results of these instructions in part two. And and I want to in verses 13 through 17. I want to point to two results in this section. Both of these are shaped by the reality of suffering. Which is the theme really of the entire book of 1 Peter. And the particular subject of the new section that we jump into when we get to verse 13. That runs to the end of chapter 4. Peter says you are going to suffer for doing good. Just like Jesus did. But in the midst of this, as you live this kind of life, here are some things that he holds up as results. And I just want to point to two for us. First, the first result is confidence, assurance, a lack of fear, and anxiety. Verse 13 begins with the word and or then, which is dropped in some translations. But this demonstrates a connection in Peter's thought with the preceding two verses. The idea from verse 12 is that the eyes of the Lord are on you. The righteous. And this then connects to the question that's asked in verse 13. Who is going to harm you, he says, if you are eager or zealous for doing good? And the answer, of course, is no one. Verse 14a goes on to show that this is the case even if you suffer, Peter says. Because if you suffer for what is right, you are not harmed, actually. Though, of course, you are harmed in an immediate sense. But you are blessed, he says by God by following in the footsteps of Jesus this of course sounds like the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 5 blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account rejoice and be glad Jesus says for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you even that which hurts you suffering Is actually a source of blessing. Your suffering does not mean. That you're experiencing now God's displeasure. But it means to the contrary. That you're receiving his blessing. As you are walking in the footsteps of Jesus. So he continues by quoting Isaiah 8.12. Do not fear what they fear. He says. Do not be frightened. And then Isaiah goes on to say. Honor the Lord Almighty as holy. But Peter says. But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Or honor Christ the Lord as holy. Sanctify him. Lift him up in your hearts. And then Isaiah finishes this passage with let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. The point Peter's saying is don't be afraid of anything. Only God. And this mirrors his word to wives as we saw last week in chapter 3 verse 6. Do what is right and do not give way to fear he says. And that's the same idea here. Sanctify Christ in your hearts Or as Jesus teaches us to pray hallowed be your name sanctify your name. O God lift him up and live in the fear of God alone. Not fearing all of these other things. I'd like to say to the church today with all of the unrest in our culture. With Christianity itself being moved more and more to the margins in our society. It is true that we can often be gripped by fear and anxiety. But Peter's word here is so deeply applicable to you and me today. Do good, turn away from evil, and remember that nothing can really, in an ultimate sense, harm you. His words here are not unlike Paul's words in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's what Peter's saying. God is on your side. Do not be afraid. Do not be anxious. Honor Christ as Lord in your hearts. And because he is on the throne. And because his eye is upon you. Even in your suffering. Don't be afraid. You're being blessed. So live free. Live boldly. Live courageously in your lives. That's the first result. The second result that I want us to see is that our lives as we live in this way provoke a question. We are in fact a people of hope as the church. And our hope as it is lived out faithfully in the midst of a broken world is a provocative hope. As we live in this fear of the Lord way, as we do good and turn away from evil, evil, others will notice, Peter says. That's his contention. So he says in verse 15 of chapter 2 that their good lives would silence the foolish talk of ignorant men. But now he says it will do more than silence them. It will lead them to asking you a question. It is, of course, possible that this question is coming only from those who want to push you down as they demand that you account for this foreign and threatening way of life. But it's also possible that this question is a genuinely inquisitive question. How do you live like that? How is your life marked in this way? How do you know that kind of joy? How do you take care of the poor so faithfully? How are you willing to put yourself in harm's way to bless others how do you yield to that harsh employer in the way that you do day in and day out how do you forgive people who clearly have hurt you Peter says your lives in which you do not retaliate insult for insult your lives together that embody a Christ-like love and humility these lives will provoke questions questions that are asked and when those questions are asked he encourages us always be prepared he says to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have these questions don't merely apply to a legal setting the word here is to give a defense but most who read this text think that because he says to everyone always be prepared to give an answer to everyone or to to all people it suggests more informal social settings where these questions are being asked where Christians are being held on trial, in a sense, every day by their neighbors, by their coworkers, by local leaders, by those who are observing their lives. Speak to them as they ask questions of this living hope that is the grounding and foundation of your lives, that is demonstrated and revealed through the way that you live. And of course, that means speaking of Jesus, the resurrected king, most of all, apart from whom their living hope has no life and nor does ours but do so Peter continues give these responses to these questions that your lives are provoking with gentleness he continues and respect keeping a clear conscience verse 16 so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of your of their slander here I'd like to refer to something that I said in the opening sermon in this series our culture is not to experience us as Christians primarily in the role of critic or judge it is I must say unfortunate that this is often the way we as Christians are perceived and when I say that I don't mean to say that we are not called to speak for the truth that we cannot advocate for Christian points of view in the public sphere on any number of matters I believe that in fact we can but it does and not only that we can but that we should but it does mean that we must do so with a certain kind of kindness and winsomeness and humility. Supported, of course, by lives that are qualitatively different, as Peter teaches us in verses 8 and 9. The culture is to experience us as intriguing, thoughtful, provocative people, not belligerent, militant, self-righteous, hypocritical, or dismissive if we're perceived in that way our lives do not provoke questions only anger and defensiveness and perhaps much of that justified but Peter tells these Christians they were a small minority they had no rights no privileges to love to live a life of this kind of enemy love and that then they would provoke questions to which they are to give answers with gentleness and respect That word respect is again the word for fear. And like I said last week, I do believe here it applies most to a vertical dimension of their fear of the Lord as they give these answers, which leads them then to treat those who are even maligning them, insulting them, or even potentially asking genuine questions of them with great dignity as those creatures who are made in God's image. And he says that all of this, if they respond in this way, verse 16, that those who speak against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander as they see your lives as they hear your responses that they'll be ashamed of the slander that they took against you. Francis Collins the well-known scientist head of the NIH was initially rudely dismissed by the writer and polemicist and atheist Christopher Hitchens at a debate in October of 2007 between Hitchens and Alistair McGrath at Georgetown University. Writing about this in The Atlantic, Peter Weiner describes the moment in the following way. Quote, Hitchens responded quickly and dismissively, saying that he was shocked that one of the greatest scientific minds in the world would ask such a superficial and silly question. Collins had asked a question about the objective grounding of morality. But Hitchens didn't actually answer it. Weiner continues, the audience, meanwhile, was taken aback by Hitchens' rudeness, as was I, someone who was friendly with Hitchens' end quote however after the debate Collins sought out Hitchens to continue the conversation and later they had more interactions together which eventually led to some genuine conversations then Hitchens was diagnosed with esophageal cancer in the summer of 2010 that cancer took his life in December of 2011 but in that final year and a half of Hitchens life Collins stepped in as a friend got to know his wife and daughter and helped him however he could with his cancer treatments writing about collins in a vanity fair article 15 months before he died christopher hitchens described collins as quote the best of the faithful one of the greatest living americans and a great humanitarian so here in this one example the slander of one of the greatest modern day slanderers of christianity was silenced was stopped by a man who did good, who overlooked insult and offense, and who acted in Jesus's name with kindness. That's giving a reason backed by a transformed life of doing good. And that's what Peter calls us to as disciples of Jesus. As we close, I want to consider a number of questions to get us thinking about these things in the week ahead have we embraced the Christian community and joined its ranks as person as a, as a person who possesses the qualities of love sympathy compassion and humility aiming always to be in harmony with one another and with others who believe or do we default to consuming religious goods and services including sermons that are dispensed by a handful of professional Christian servants that is not the way of the church brothers and sisters we are all needed we are an organic body everyone given gifts to bring to bear in the life of our community all of us needed all of us called to be a key part in a unified family of love so I want to ask you to consider this week One practical step further into the family of Park Street Church, if this is your church home. Consider how your manner of life with others in this church, even those with whom perhaps you have a history of hurt and misunderstanding, might be marked instead by familial love. Try to be specific about that in the week ahead. A second question Do we perpetuate the cycle of insult and evil in the world by responding in kind? Or because of Christ do we absorb insults and respond instead with blessing? Again, please understand this doesn't mean that we're being called to remain in relationships where where we're being bullied and mistreated. Rather, this kind of absorption of evil is a response of strength and power in the Lord Jesus himself. And an imitation of Jesus that is reflected in our lack of retaliation toward others and toward evildoers even those who inflict their evil and insults directly upon us so I ask you where and with whom might God be asking you this week to put this into practice as you seek to live faithfully in response to his mercy third do our words reflect the love of Jesus think about your speech in the past week And not just your speech when people were watching you but your speech with trusted friends behind closed doors it is easy to be careless with our words in what we say and especially to do so in secret but do we in the fear of the Lord keep our tongue from evil and our lips from speaking deceit at all times instead of insults do we bless So I encourage us in the week ahead to consider our words do they reflect our hearts Peter's teaching here says what is in your hearts this hope that's within you will be reflected very much in your words a fourth question are we crippled by fear and anxiety at all that is going on in the world I want to caveat and say that there is a real condition of anxiety and if you suffer from that I want you to know that I'm not singling you out that is real and we want to help and encourage you in the church but I ask in a general sense are we being crippled by fear and anxiety or are we living in the fear of the Lord assured that we are under his watchful care and eye and that he as he feeds the birds of the air and clothes the lilies of the field will also feed and clothe us. Perhaps this week ahead is a week to pray specifically about the fear and anxiety that resides in your soul and to ask God to show you how it and not his love and grace and care and rule animates your life. Remember he is on the throne and he watches over you. Finally and lastly are our lives provoking questions think about that in your own life is the way that you live provoking questions is it a provocative hope that is within you because of our joy our kindness our purity our care for the poor our commitment to justice our love for those in this community that we call our home our love for our enemies even and those who oppose us do our lives cause those who malign or ridicule this faith to say no 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 wait those Christians they have something different something else how do they live like they live and when that question is asked of you are you ready to give a response to speak of the love of Jesus the resurrection of Jesus that animates your life or could it be said of us as Gandhi famously said of the Christians that he encountered in South Africa I like your Christ he said but I do not like your Christians your Christians are so unlike your Christ may that not be may that not be said of us Our lives of doing good and abstaining from evil and sinful desires, our lives of suffering for doing good, our lives of loving one another, of absorbing evil, these lives are to prompt the question, no, tell me more about your Christ. Tell me about the one that you're worshiping and serving, the one who animates this life that you're living in front of all of us for all of us to see, even when we ridicule you and malign you. Who is the one who enables you to live like that? Tell me more about him. Tell me more about this thing called the crucifixion and the resurrection. I only knew the cross as something that athletes wore around their neck. What does it mean to you? If our lives seem more to be just like everyone else around us, they're not provocative at all. And if that's the way we would evaluate our lives, then I would say to you this week, let's ask God to show us. God, show me how I might more faithfully embody this way. That you've described for us in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 3. And let's be courageous in following his answer. And let's do this not just as individuals remember. But let's do this together as the body of Christ. A provocative community of faith and hope. Let's be a family where everything will be okay in here. No matter what's going on out there. And let's provide refuge for one another. In the midst of a world that is ultimately not our home where we are aliens and strangers. I pray that this will be so more and more for us as a body of believers, that we will spur one another on to this kind of doing good, this kind of love, this kind of non-retaliation, this kind of fearlessness. For that is what it means by the mercy of God to be born again into a living hope. That is what it means for us to be followers of Jesus. Let's pray. O oh God, our Father, we cry out to you as those who have been rescued by your mercy and by your grace, as those whose hearts have been warmed. And we thank you and praise you that you watch over us. May we not be afraid, O oh Lord. And may you lead us into this way of love, this kind of family, and enable our lives to provoke questions in the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.